Thanks, Jeremy. Good morning, all of life. Glad that you are here. We're going to dive right in uh, this morning to John 15. We're going to really be focusing on John 15, 5, and 6 this morning. Uh, We're right in the middle of this Abide series, and we've just created an acronym with the word Abide to kind of walk us through John chapter 15. So two weeks ago, we started with this idea of Jesus calling his disciples to attention. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He saw himself as one with the father, the I am. There's all kinds of historical, theological content packed up in those two words, but he also said, I'm the true vine. Israel saw themselves as the life giver to the world, the the nation who was mediating between God and the other surrounding nations, but Jesus said, no, 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 I am the true vine, not you, Israel, but it is me. So we called ourselves to attention, to focus on who Jesus is, particularly and also his oneness with the Father. And then last week, we talked about bearing loving loving fruit through abiding roots. We focused on verses 2 through 4 in John chapter 15. And now this week, we are uh, talking through this idea of in Christ, we persevere. We're not talking about just perseverance per se all the way to the end. You might know of the, the doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. That's not actually what I'm getting at here. I'm getting at we persevere in bearing fruit. We persevere in bearing, actually, according to Jesus' words, much fruit when we abide in him. Uh, If you would like a bracelet, we've got some free Abide bracelets on the table over here. We also have a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sufferers and Sinners. Those are free to you. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we'd love for you to take a copy of that home and just to explore it and to read it devotionally. John 15.5 has a particular place in my own heart. When I, 17 years ago, when I, when I started for real following Jesus, um, I memorized John 15.5. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Over the, the years, this verse has come home to me hundreds of different ways. It's come out in conversations. It's come out in my own personal life. It's, it's come, uh, it, it actually has um, been a key way that I've seen Jesus keep me over the years. He continues to just remind me that my work is abiding. If anyone abides in me and I in him, he it is, she it is that will bear much fruit. It's been this motivator for um, continued pursuit of Jesus uh, because we all know I'm the first among us, and you're right there. Like, we go dry. There are times when we detach, and we need to abide. We go dry. And so having these truths deeply embedded in us, it makes a real difference. And so that is kind of my big idea this morning out of John 15, 5 and 6. The big idea is this. Keeping heart-level contact with Jesus is what makes the difference for us. Keeping heart-level contact with Jesus is what makes the difference in our lives. We can keep head-level contacts, uh, like contact with him, and know all of the theological truths and be these big Bible heads, but still have like cold, smarmy hearts. And nobody likes to be around that person, except other people like them but keeping a heart-level contact where the truth about Jesus that forms in our heads, the doctrines 
that are true when they start to trickle down into our very being and they start to come out of us through our mouths, through our eyes, through our embraces, through our hands, through our good deeds. Like, man, there is like real, real, real fruit and change and testimony, to use a churchy word, a Bible word actually, testimony to the goodness of God. So keeping heart-level contact with Jesus is what makes the difference between our fruit bearing and actually judgment too, according to Jesus's words, John 15, five and six. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Tough words, encouraging words on the front end, tough words on side B. Have you ever, ever had a person in your life who uh, you've known well, but who you lost touch with? And they, all of us, are, we've had this experience. And then uh, along comes the day when you realize that you need or want something from that individual. What do you do in that moment? Oftentimes, it kind of depends on your relationship, but oftentimes, what do we do? We don't just go to them. We often hesitate. We often hesitate. There's something in us that says, I can't ask them for something. Why? Because I've been absent. I have not chosen them. And so if you're anything like me, you kind of say, hey, been thinking about you. And then you kind of work the little sneaky thing in around the, the backside of that. You've done that? Yeah, me too. Disciples do this in our relationship with Jesus too. We do this in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. We detach and then we hesitate to come to him when we need something, when we want something, when we just want to cultivate love of him. <clears throat> Jesus gives us this incredible command and, and it's really an invitation as well, but also he gives us a promise in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where he says, come to me all you who are weary, laboring, I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly or humble in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The command is to come to him. The invitation is to come to him. The promise is that you will, I will, we will find rest for our souls in that moment. So Jesus invites his people continually to come to him and to learn from him. But real quick, notice, if you even want to flip there, go ahead. What comes before Matthew eleven twenty eight is eleven twenty seven, which says this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So I've got all authority. And then he says, and no one knows the Son except the Father. So he's talking about his oneness with God his father, our father. And he says, he kind of turns it around and says, no one knows the father except the son. And hear this, and anyone, anyone to whom the son, Jesus Christ, chooses to reveal him, the father. So he's saying that anybody that I choose to reveal the father to can know the father. Have you considered that this is a radical departure from the rabbis of Jesus's day? This is a radical departure. The rabbi of rabbis, the teacher of teachers in his day is actually choosing his disciples. Listen to this quote from Ray Vanderland. Like other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples. 
The, deep, the disciples' deepest desire was to follow the, follow the rabbi so closely that they would start to think and act like him. Like other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples, devout followers, who were probably in their mid-teens, so they're young, gifted students, would approach a rabbi and say, may I follow you? In effect, saying, do I have what it takes to be like you? The rabbi either accepted the student as a disciple or sent the disciple away to pursue a trade. Jesus broke this pattern when he chose his own disciples. As he asked his disciples to follow him, they knew without a doubt, I'll add, at the beginning of their journey with him, that their rabbi believed in them. A disciple followed the rabbi everywhere, often without knowing or asking where he was going. There's a kind of obedience just embedded in their way of life. He rarely left his rabbi's side for fear that he would miss a teachable moment. There's devotion here. The disciples' deepest desire was to follow their rabbi so closely that they would start to think and act like him. What else can this be but abiding? The disciple wanted to abide with their teacher. And so after choosing you, the rabbi of rabbis, Jesus of Nazareth, insists that you learn from him, that I learn from him. We're literally on the line to imitate his ways. Without fail, the first time that I try something, especially if it involves hand-eye coordination, fine motor skills, I am so clumsy. My son got a Nintendo Switch um, before Christmas, and he was asking for these pro controllers, these wireless cool controllers that, like, they, they light up. And, and, uh, and so my wife and I got him one for Christmas. Well, I didn't realize that Meredith actually bought me one for Christmas, too, so that I could play these games with him. Now, I'm not a gamer, but I am now because my son loves to play games. And so what happened? Like, I started using this thing, and I was the worst. Gideon can attest. Was I the worst? I was. <laughs> I was the worst. We were playing this. His favorite game is this game, Asphalt 8, and it's this race car game. You're driving these cool courses, and you can play it in split screen. So he's on the top. I'm on the bottom. And I could not keep the car on the road like the first few games. But what did I start to do? I started to ask him questions. I started to learn the controller. I started to imitate how he drove and take some cues from him. And pretty soon, I won a race. What? Right? Like, throw the controller at him, walk off, you know. I've won, like, two of those races, maybe, and I'm not uh, actually lying to you. That's not false humility. I actually have only won, like, two of them, maybe three. I don't know. So here's the, here's the idea. I kept contact with my son, and that's how I learned to play the game, and that's how I learned to use the controller. And as we keep heart-level contact with Jesus, we also learn how to live, and we learn how to use our life. We learn how to use our lives. We begin to think with Jesus' mind. We begin to um, have our will transformed by his will. His love for people teaches us how to love people who are both like us and unlike us. Keeping contact with Jesus is how we experience life to the full. Verse 11 in John chapter 15. Joy is going to be complete. He designed life. He knows exactly how it works. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man or a woman or a person abides in me and I in him or them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
It's when we put ourselves in the position of not having need of Jesus that we detach from him. And what else can this be but pride? The proud live as though they have no need of God. I'm, I'm okay. I'll call on you when I need you, but otherwise I'm fine. And the further that you and I detach from him, the more that we will hesitate to call on him. We may even start calling him the big guy upstairs, which is tragic. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you do that, stop. He is not the big guy upstairs. You know him. He is your father. Jesus of Nazareth is your Lord, and the Holy Spirit is your comforter and guide and counselor. You know God. He's not detached. He's, he's near. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Eventually, the more pronounced that our detachment becomes, the more real the threat of being cut off becomes. Now, Jesus, he doesn't pull his punches. In boxing um, or fighting or anything like that, pulling a punch is not punching all the way through, but it's actually at the last second pulling back and not giving the full force of the power that is available. And Jesus does not pull his punches. The alternative to fruitfulness here is not no fruit. It's actually judgment. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was contrasting himself with Israel. He said, I am the true vine. God made Israel into this nation from one man. We'll talk about this in coming weeks, named Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and maybe 17, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but he said that he would, God would bless Abraham, would make him the father of a multitude of nations, and all of the nations, all of the peoples would be blessed through his seed or through his offspring. God then would make a covenant with Abraham. It's this covenant of love saying, Abraham, even where you fail, I am going to hold true and I am going to deliver on my promises. Abraham had a family, came and went. God raised up a new leader, a prophet for the people of Israel named Moses, made a covenant with Moses. Same reiteration of his promises, but developed a little bit more. After Moses, he made a covenant with a man named David, a king, the king of Israel, developed his covenant a bit more and resided and remained with him. As each of these men led God's nation, God was there and present. And Israel's purpose was that they were to be a witness to the surrounding nations that Yahweh, it's God's name, that he is God and that there is no other. Isaiah 45, I am God and there is no other. Israel was essentially, they functioned as a mediating nation for the other nations around them. A mediating nation between mankind and between God. And if anybody wanted to be in right relationship with Yahweh, they had to come to God on his standards. They had to worship him according to the way that God had instructed Israel to worship him. But Jesus comes in verse 1 of John chapter 15, and he says, I am the true vine. Where Israel saw themselves as the true vine, the life giver, the life source, the hope of the nations, Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 you guys have failed constantly and consistently becoming more like the people around you than like your own God. They failed to bear the fruit that God, that Yahweh had asked them to bear. 
But where Israel failed, God himself, Jesus the Son, will deliver on his promises to make a way to God for mankind. Now, in this metaphor of I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus is speaking actually first to Israel, to this nation of Israel. He's judging them with his words. He's calling them fruitless branches who will be carried off and judged. You can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. If you want to write that down and go back to it, there's a judgment that Ezekiel names toward them. Jesus does it again, I think, in Matthew chapter 12. Something very similar, he says. In this message uh, here, he's calling them fruitless branches, but the, the, the warning is more general than that. It's also to the disciples and all who will come after them, supposed Christians who don't bear fruit. He's saying, take heed, pay attention, have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know. It's dangerous. The times are short. Keep watch on yourself they too could be cut off and judged. And I'll just say, no, speak for you, speak for me. No one here wants this. We do not want this. So let's take every opportunity that we have to keep a heart-level contact with the Lord Jesus. It's what makes the difference when we bring our real selves, our true selves before him. Now, Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, you can do nothing. So, you and I can do nothing without the vine, but if we're in the vine, we will persevere. We will truly bear fruit, you guys. Ladies, gentlemen, we will bear fruit. Doing nothing here, it doesn't mean that we can't do anything like we think of doing things. Yeah, we can still mow the lawn. We can still do our homework. We can still go to work. We can still call a friend, right? But if we're willing to give Jesus the credit that is due to him, we can't actually do any of those things without him. Why? Because apart from Jesus, we would not even be. Listen to how John opens his gospel in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. It's this Greek word logos. It's a concept word. It's got a massive theological construct, construct behind it. Jesus is creator. It's a creation kind of word. In the beginning was the word. The word there is symbolizing Jesus, speaking of Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Hear that? All things were made through Jesus and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the apostle Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, for us, there is one God the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist, or for whom we exist. And there's also, we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's speaking of the oneness of Jesus and the Father. Now, I'm going to transition here just, just slightly, and I want to read a quote from D.A. Carson, speaking of fruit. So we're turning a little corner here, and we're considering what the fruit is that Jesus is speaking of in John 15, but also in the whole, in the whole of the Scriptures. There's been considerable, D.A. Carson writes, there has been considerable dispute over the nature of the fruit envisioned or envisaged. The fruit, he says, is uh, the fruit we are told is obedience or it's new converts or it's love. We spoke about this last week, love for one another, 
or it's even Christian character. And D.A. Carson says these interpretations are actually reductionistic. We're simplifying what isn't so simple. The branch's purpose is to bear much fruit. Now, last week I talked about how our love for one another, Jesus speaks constantly in John 15 about loving one another, loving one another, loving one another, and he also speaks consistently about abiding in him as the pathway to bearing fruit. And I said the big E on the eye chart last week of this fruit that Jesus is speaking of in John 15 is love for one another. I think that's true, but I think D.A. Carson brings us a helpful corrective here. The branch's purpose is to bear much fruit, he goes on to say, which includes obedience to Jesus' commands in John 15, 10, experience of Jesus' joy in John 15, 11, earlier also in John 14, 27, our love for each other, yes, in John 15, 12, also our witness to the world, John 15, 16, and 15, 27. So he concludes his comment here in saying, this fruit is nothing less than the outcome. Our fruitfulness through abiding in Christ is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine. Driven by our faith. Embracing, so this encompasses all of the believer's life and and is the product of our witness. Now, bearing much fruit is a privilege that is too good for you and I to pass up. I said last week we talked about the big E on the eye chart being love for one another. I think that's still true in John chapter 15. Romans 5 says the Holy Spirit has poured his love into our hearts. One of our first responses and our ongoing responses as followers of Jesus is that we love God and that we love one another. It's the great commandment. However, there's other fruitfulness that D.A. Carson inferred here and and brought brought to our attention in John 15. And so we can think more broadly in the scriptures, like, okay, when I say fruit of what, you might say fruit of the Spirit. You might be thinking of Galatians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Galatia, in Galatians 5.22 through, I think, 33 or 23. He says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the, the outcome of our life when the Holy Spirit is working through us, it begins actually with love and it moves to joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul says, against there, these things, there's no law, meaning there's, we need no governance We don't have to write to our legislators to try to get them to crack down on these people who are a little too joyful, a little too kind to each other, a little too gentle. In fact, we need more and more and more of this. Who else but the people of God to bring this into the world? The scriptures also, though, speak of fruitfulness of other kinds and varieties and generally point to anything that comes through, stealing from D.A. Carson here, a disciple's persevering, dependent life, a life that's driven by looking to Christ, abiding in Christ, driven by our faith. So Romans chapter 12 in your New Testament, it has this helpful summary of fruitfulness. I want to read it here. Feel free to turn there and your Bibles, your apps, if you're following along. Romans chapter 12, starting in like verse 9, verse 10, somewhere in there. Let love be genuine. When our love toward our brothers and sisters is genuine, and towards others, outsiders, is genuine, that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It calls us to abhor what is evil. 
So as we grow and being repulsed by what the world calls good, but we know God calls evil, there's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of Christ that comes forward as we abhor what is evil and we hold fast. That's the other side of that coin to what is good. He calls us to love one another with brotherly, familial affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. If we're going to compete, let's not compete to destroy each other. Let's compete to outdo one another and lifting one another up. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is all fruitfulness. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's what we get to do with Vlad in Romania. It's the fruit of our church life together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Withhold the words that we so bad want to say. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Remember, this is God's word. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then Paul says, beloved, the church, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a mysterious phrase to us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he writes. This is all Christian fruitfulness. All that sounds great. God's economy, his way of relating to his people, his way of commanding his people to relate to one another, it is good and it is wonderful. What's best for us, God loves. What God loves is very, very, very good for you and I. It can be argued easily that no human life has been as consequential for humanity than that of Jesus of Nazareth. No human life in all of human history has been as consequential than that of Jesus. The power source of Jesus' fruitful life was that he kept heart-level contact with his Father and heart-level contact with the Spirit the Holy Spirit, who was guiding him and empowering him throughout his life. He was constantly drawing on the resources that the Father joyfully and wonderfully and generously held out to him. Jesus, as a man of Nazareth, had needs, real ones. And he brought them to his Father consistently and constantly. The real Jesus brought his real needs. The real Jared can bring his real needs. The real you can bring your real needs, keeping heart-level contact with your Lord, with your Father, with the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Jesus tells us, commands us to keep heart-level contact with him like he kept heart-level contact with our Father and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's where we're going to conclude. If keeping contact heart-level contact with Jesus is the key, is the path to our fruitfulness, how do we intentionally keep contact with him? 
how do we put ourselves in the place of blessing? Are there guaranteed places of encounter? Are there guaranteed places where you and I are guaranteed, promised by God that we will encounter him? Whether we feel it or not is not the point, but he promises that he will be there in our midst. Yes, there are. And all of them are tangible forms of abiding. I've been listening to a teacher in Toronto named John Thompson over the last few weeks, and the Lord has just dropped this on me like a bomb, and I'm like right on the front end. I'm like, why have I not thought about this and cataloged some of these guaranteed places where the Spirit will be, the Spirit of Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit is referred to sometimes, the Spirit of Christ will be present with me, with us, with you in these moments. Why are we not just placing ourselves refusing to budge until, like Jacob, I hear from you. What are some of them? The gospel. The good news about Jesus. We say around here, the gospel is for all of life. It's for everything. It's not just the way in. We say it's the way onward. We continue to rehearse it and draw deeply from it as our power source and energy source, reminding ourselves that God has come and called an unworthy person like me to him and has done everything that I need to pave the way so that I can be reconciled to my father and have life with him. And not only that, but he keeps moving me on as I keep rehearsing these truths. He's done the impossible. Wherever, whenever a person proclaims the gospel, Jesus is there in that place. Wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, which it is right now, we know that the Spirit of God is with us. Whether we feel him or not, he is here and present with us. Whether or not the person that you are sharing your faith with comes to faith, the Spirit of Jesus is present with you, giving you words and testifying to his reality. When you and I are on mission, he is there. When you're sharing the gospel with your kids or with your friends or beholding it in awe at all that God has done for you, Jesus is present. Whoever believes it for the very first time as it is being proclaimed is in that moment, according to Ephesians 1.13, being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is our guarantee until the day of redemption. Jesus is present where the gospel is being wondered at and proclaimed and believed. Heart-level contact. Additionally, in the moment of communion, the elements of communion are here in this place. In just a moment, we will partake. We don't believe that the physical body and the, and the literal blood of Jesus is present in these elements as other faith traditions do, but also as a corrective, we don't also believe that these are mere memorial or mere symbolism. There is something sacred that occurs in the act of partaking in communion as we proclaim Jesus' death and his resurrection and we remember it until he comes. We are encountering the real Jesus who washes us clean from our sin and promises that he will come again and he will not leave us as 
orphans. Every single time the bread is on your tongue and the cup comes to your lips, the Spirit of Jesus is here ministering to us, our souls activating our faith. Heart-level contact. Baptism. Another place of guaranteed encounters through baptism. When a man or a woman says yes to Jesus and is baptized, you are exercising obedience. This is designed to be a first act of obedience that declares that you really believe that you are washed clean and made new and you're now able to come into the presence of your holy God boldly, with bold faith and confidence that he hears you, that he loves you, that he will come through for you every day of your life. Faithful and true is his name. Even beyond baptism, the Lord loves obedience because it's a sign of humility, the opposite of pride. Heart-level contact and obedience. Not just going through the motions, but trying to get our heart there too. You know it's a struggle. We're all on the struggle bus. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, Jesus says in John 15, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How about worship? Guaranteed place of encounter. This is a really broad category, and I'm gonna be broad with it, but it includes things like prayer. It includes things like reading the scriptures. It includes gathering here together, like on a Sunday. Sundays matter because we're the family of God who gather under his blessing, grateful for his provision. And as we offer our gratitude and our thanks to him and our real needs to him, he lifts us up, not from a distance, but from a near place. He's right here. Emmanuel means God is with us. Jesus' own brother James says that draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Not just Sundays either, but in gospel communities and smaller communities where we're gathering and circling people up together around the gospel, beholding it, praying for one another, interceding. Fellowship is like breaking bread, eating, loving our time together, laughing, poking fun, having a good time. We have cohorts like 11 women will be meeting tonight over the course of nine months to just press into who they are as women and what Jesus says to them growing in their faith. We have a men's cohort with another 10 or 11 guys. We have a year two discipleship cohort with another 10 or 11 men. These cohorts, discipleship groups, like little same gender groups of people who get together to behold the gospel, to pray for one another, to intercede, to discover what God's word says, to nurture one another's hearts, to act on what his word calls us to. You don't need my permission to gather up with your loved ones, with the people around you. By all means, Jesus has freed you to get together and to press in. So do that. We need one another for where two or three are gathered in my name. What does Jesus say? There I am with them. Whenever we open the scriptures, whenever we open our hearts in prayer, God is with us. So when you're opening the Bible on your lunch break, God's word isn't just past words. He's presently speaking to you. When you open your Bible in the dark in the morning before the whole house is noisy and chaotic, he's there with you. At night, if that's your rhythm, he's there with you when the scriptures are open. Guaranteed place of encounter as well as suffering. 
Are you suffering? Suffering often comes with grief and a whole lot of mourning. What does Jesus promise us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5? Those who mourn will be comforted. Comforted by who? The idea is that God himself will comfort. He will bring comfort. He will be present. In fact, the Holy Spirit is named. One of the titles that, he give, that God gives himself is comforter. So God himself comforts. Elsewhere, God in the scriptures pronounces that he is near to the brokenhearted. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who, present tense, comforts us in all our affliction. Heart-level contact. Also, guaranteed place of encounter is service to people around you in Jesus' name pursuing them in his name, whether they're under-resourced or whether they need, just need a hand, one another and the poor. Think of Vlad in Romania. We get to send him and two other pastors to Spain to be trained and to network. Like it's cold and it's hard and there are not other pastors that Vlad can um, have community with like we do here in the four churches in his town in Romania. He feels very isolated. So his community with other people who know what he is going through comes through Zoom and phone calls and text messages. And so for us to be able to give means that he gets to go and be embodied in Spain and find some rest and encouragement, but also meet some other people who he probably doesn't even know who have heard about this gathering, and they will be encouraged, and we get to be a part of that. Uh, here's where I'm going to close. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Uh, this is Jesus speaking of service to the poor. He says, when... The Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king, capital K, king there, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Whoa. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hard words. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in, in prison? And we didn't minister to you. And then he'll say to them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's two sides of a coin. Good news and really, really, really tough news.
lives for those who are cut off in the same way that John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit, but for the fruitless they will be cut off. All of these ways that I've listed, they're, they're also not exclusive either. Mentioned the gospel, mentioned baptism, communion, worship, scripture prayer, service to the poor, suffering. They're not, there's more. I haven't mentioned all of them, but all of these are ways that we keep heart level contact with Jesus and practice abiding. And as we abide, we will bear much fruit. May we take Jesus at his word. Pray with me this morning. Father, we we love you and we need a lot of help. A lot of help. So help us to park ourselves in the place of guaranteed encounter with you. Help us to identify what those places are for us, some low-hanging fruit that we can just lean into. Help us to assess and reassess our lives and our time, the busy young moms in the room, the busy employees in the room, the busy men in the room, the busy students in the room, whoever just finds their schedules packed and stacked and distractions and and commotion abounding, would you help them to identify the small ways that they can be with you? Would you help them to lean in and would they not beat themselves up because they want more, but they just in their humanity can't. Would you meet them in a way that is powerful and comforting to their souls? In Jesus' name, help.